Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the Japanese Studies Channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Trapagan, an anthropologist and professor in the program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Chris McMorrin to talk about his new book, Ryokan, Mobilizing Hospitality in Rural Japan, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2022. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the New Books Network. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted. And I'm looking really forward to talking about this book because it's been was really interesting to me. Um, and I learned a whole lot from this. So I want to start with some general background. Um, Chris is a cultural geographer and associate professor in the Department of Japanese Studies at the National University of Singapore. His broad research interests lie in the areas of geographies of home and geographies of teaching and learning. And so I'd like to just start out by asking, um, how did you get interested in Japan and, and more specifically the somewhat unusual focus on inns in Japan? Uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, um, I got interested in Japan, uh, as a lot of people of my academic generation did, uh, through the JET program. So I uh, didn't spend any time in Japan or study anything related to Japan, but I had a desire to live outside the U.S. after doing my bachelor's degree. And I accepted the offer of the JET program and ended up here in Kumamoto City. That's where I'm uh, talking to you now from. Um, I had a wonderful time. And while here, I got to experience staying in a few ryokan. Um, of course, they're more expensive than most uh, assistant language teachers can afford uh, to do very often. So it wasn't uh, something I, I indulged in very much. But I was really interested in the landscapes of Kurokawa Onsen in particular. And as I spent more time in that place that I kind of fell in love with, I started thinking about the people who worked behind the scenes to make it tick, both the ones who you know planted the trees and cleaned up and made the landscapes look the way they did, but also the people who worked in the kitchens and in the guest rooms and uh, who created that uh, amazing Japanese sense of hospitality. Hmm. That's really interesting. Actually, there's one thing you said that kind of intrigued me, how other sort of structures have shaped various generations. When, when you said how the JET program kind of shaped the generation of people who study Japan, I actually thought of my teachers who were largely there in the occupation. And, you know, it's just kind of interesting how some of these different moments in history create a generation of people who've studied another culture and, and Japan in particular. So it was very interesting. Um, 
So you make an, an early a point early in the book. You you I think make a very important point. You start you're, you're talking about kind of you know popular emphasis on the figures of salaryman and housewife that have tended to perpetuate a lot of myths about Japanese homogeneity, in particular in relation to work. And uh, I was quite struck by this because, you know, I think about a a lot of the post-World War II writing in the West has really emphasized that white collar, middle class, living in the, you know, apartment in the big city, and and it has become Japan. And and it's like kind of a trope about Japan, basically. And, And so... You'll hear people talk about, you know, Japan's a homogeneous society. I've heard people use the word monoculture when they describe Japan, which if you've been there, you realize it isn't. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about this issue of homogeneity in relation to Japan, its problems, and also how you think it tends to influence outside perceptions of Japanese culture and society. Well, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, I can p- pick apart uh, bits of it uh, um uh, first, for instance, uh, yeah, the whole idea of the salaryman and housewife as this pairing, um, you know, both in popular culture, popular news, common beliefs about Japan, those those tropes seem to hold on despite decades of anthropological work that has kind of unpacked that. Um, at the same time, we can't ignore that they those those models continue to exist. Some people still want to have the security of the salaryman life. And some uh, people want to marry into, uh, you know, marry someone who has that secure future. Um, So those things are, you know, they're always kind of um, in the background in Japan. And yet at the same time, they are um, not as uniform and universal as outsiders may, uh, outside news or organizations or other people might believe. So uh, part of my work and, um, uh, you know, I also was just saying part of the work of, of decades of anthropologists has been unpacking this. This thing that has caused a problem in, as you said, uh, convinced some people to think that Japan is a kind of monoculture that there's some deeper level of homogeneity in Japan that um, that leads everyone to think and behave in, in very similar ways. Um, yes, I. So another part I was going to 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 say in response to that is um, this is of course one of the challenges of teaching about Japan, and as I do in my class on Introduction to Japan, you know, hundreds of students from Singapore who have actually had the opportunity to travel to Japan. Uh, most of them have gone on family vacations, um, sometimes multiple times in their in their zeros and, and, and teens before they come to university. But they also have some stereotypes about Japan. And so one of the things that we do in that course is to unpack that stereotype and to talk about, um, you know, whether it's so- subcultures or, or um, the myth of Japanese people not... Um, not being uh, not being open to violent I wouldn't say violent resistance but certainly the protests of the 1960s showed some violence um, so those kinds of ways of disrupting uh, stereotypes about Japan including its homogeneity and the homogeneity or the, the idea of the monoculture of the salary man and housewife uh, those are things that we actively do in the classroom and it's I think having taught that it impacted me also in the book as a kind of sensing a need to address that um that common 
tr- myth or trope about Japan. And it's very easy to do when it comes, I'll, I'll, I'll say just one more thing. It's very easy to do when it comes to the ryokan because uh, the myth of the uh, salary man and, and, and housewife has, um, has shaped what we think about the spaces of work and the places of work, the time structures and, and the locations in such a powerful way. All you have to do is go to a ryokan and you see that all of those myths have been exploded. Uh, the time of work takes place, it, it, it's completely, it's structured in a completely different way. And the location is not a, a, a corporation somewhere outside of the house, but it's in the house itself. So the ryokan is a perfect opportunity to quickly dismantle all of those beliefs about the salaryman and housewife. Yeah, I think actually there's a, several, you know, wonderful points to think about there. One thing is this, the, the, integration of one's teaching and one's research and how much they're tied together in so many different ways. Uh, and that comes through. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting is you use the word, you know, disrupting this image of homogeneity in Japan. And um, your book is disruptive. That's the way I would describe it. It, it kind of captures a look at Japan that we don't typically get in a lot of writing and it, it sort of disrupts this notion of homogeneity. And so one of the things I, I, I learned a huge amount in reading this book, I, I was uh, really fascinated as I went through and, you know, I've spent many years studying Japan and it was a lot of new stuff for me. And one thing that was new to me is the significance of the inn as a workspace for women who have either dropped or opted out of expected parents uh, patterns, excuse me, of marriage and child rearing. And I was um, struck by the extent to which women who work in the Ryokan seem in some ways trapped by the combination of low pay, but also relatively consistency of uh, employment. So as you describe it, it's it certainly seems like a very difficult life. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this situation for our readers and perhaps also discuss why it's so common that single mothers, for example, uh, find themselves working in Ryokan. Yeah, that's a really important question. And it gets to really the heart of the second half of the book, which is this idea of who populates Ryokan space. Now, for any Ryokan that has more than a few rooms and is busy for, busy for more than a few nights a week. The couple who owns the and operates the inn needs a staff of people who are there from the earliest time in the morning to late at night to to do all of the like body to body uh, labor that is necessary in an inn. I mean, the serving of tea and the cleaning of rooms and the serving of dinner and the helping guests along uh, during their stay that that is all labor intensive you know emotionally and physically intensive labor and the owners cannot possibly take care of all the guests they have so they need someone to do that work for them now it took me a while i suppose spending my time in japan to hit upon who is doing that work i mean you have to spend a little bit of time backstage at a at a ryokan or you have to spend some time thinking okay, if someone has to be there all the time, what are these people not doing, which is not taking care of a family of their own? I mean, that's the kind of logic behind this. Uh, Many of these uh, people working in the inns are women. Um, A lot of the people that I worked with were in their 50s and 60s, some people even in their 70s. They were divorced, they were separated, 
Um, they were, in some cases, single and never married. Uh, but what made them kind of what, what kept them in common or what, what they had in common was that they didn't have a family in their own home that needed them to take care of them. So um, it, it, it kind of, I, as, as I realized this and it dawned on me more and more, I started talking with people. And the funny thing is, the more Japanese people I talked with about this, they kind of shrugged it off as, as, uh, as common sense. Um, uh, it seems like it's something that everyone kind of knows, but they, it's not worth thinking about deeply. But I found it uh, a very um, you know, fascinating element of Ryokan life was thinking about and, and understanding the lives of th- these women who had fallen into Ryokan work. As I say in one part of the book, uh, I never found anyone who wanted to be a Nakai. That's the title for the, the woman who's uh, doing most of the cleaning and serving of meals in a ryokan. Uh, they kind of fell into it by bad luck or other circumstances. And then once they start the job, it's very easy to get trapped in that world, especially if you don't have another income to support you to find a better job. Or um, geographically speaking, if you are located in a job in a tiny village off in the middle of the mountains, like the women in Kurokawa Onsen, who don't have other viable work options nearby and might not even have a driver's license and the ability to go do an interview somewhere. I mean, they really feel like they can get trapped. Uh, many of them live in dormitories just a few minutes away from the workplace and they can easily get into a pattern of just working and then on the days off exhausted doing nothing back in the room. So, yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's one of the things the book does really, really well is it, 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 conveys this behind the scenes world that if you've been to a, a Ryokan, you just don't see, you have no sense that it's there because it's a very sort of staged environment. And, um, the book book really captures that beautifully. Um, one of the things that I also noticed throughout the book, um, you, you know, you talk a bit about one of the kind of unavoidable features of rural society in Japan these days. Um, and that's the um, issue of depopulation. And, you know, basically anyone who's visited Japan um, has or has done research in the area, certainly, uh, you become very quickly aware that the population as a whole is shrinking and that this is really noticeable in rural areas. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how this demographic trend um, is influencing the Ryokan industry these days. Wow, that's a really great question and a very complex one. Of course, the depopulation of some areas of rural Japan have led to some people um, treasuring the countryside even more than they did in the past. I mean, this is related to Marilyn Ivey's idea of the you know discourses of the vanishing. As the countryside and as the population of the countryside vanishes, there is more awareness of that vanishing and more concern about that potential vanishing, uh, which has propelled more people to go seek out the countryside through tourism. And I've certainly found that to be the case in Kurokawa, which became popular in the late 1980s, um, around the time that that Marilyn Ivey was writing about. Um, At the same time, 
there's been a real concern among Ryokan owners of who will be the next generation to take over these inns. In some places, the inns are in not very popular tourist areas. So Kurokawa Onsen is, is quite rare in that it does have you know, hundreds of thousands of people per year visit there. And the, uh, even those inns have some struggles finding uh, an heir or a successor for the business. And you can imagine if you are running a small inn in a small village that is losing population and doesn't have anything else really going for it, it would be hard to draw your children, one of your children, back to take over the inn for the next generation. I mean, they just wouldn't see the financial future in it. And so this can lead to the abandonment of inns. Um, that's the reality. And at the same time, as I said earlier, it can also lead to, uh, in, in the places that are popular, it can lead more people to want to travel to those spaces. And it can help repopulate or at least maintain the population of some of those uh, small towns and villages. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the I see it a lot where, where I, you know, do my work up in, in northern Japan. The onsen industry, you know, attracts a lot of people. Um, but when you, you look at the areas around the onsen, they're, they're, it's just incredibly evident how rapidly the population is shrinking. You see empty schools and, you know, endless empty houses and storefronts and that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, I could see how the Ryokan would, would significantly influence an area by, in some ways, at least attracting um, money, if not necessarily people. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the other thing is, you know, any Ryokan that has, I mean, every Ryokan relies on vendors for meat and, you know, milk and miso and soy sauce and, and other things, you know, vegetables, uh, fresh food to put on the table is necessary and you also rely on people who are you know repairing tatami mats and and other like local builders and so a flourishing ryokan or in this case a flourishing onsen in the case of kurokawa helps keep a larger community of um of uh craftspeople and farmers in business it's really vital to the community and at the same time, you can look at the other way. If it's a dying town and there's not many tourists and it, it um, you know, the buildings start falling down or being abandoned, it can actually heighten the awareness of that uh, depopulation and the, 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 the <laughs> I don't know, it's it, the, the classic example for me because I, I visit there almost every year, is uh, Tsuetate. I have nothing against Tsuetate Onsen. It's in the northern part of, of Kumamoto, right on the border with uh, with Oita. It's a, it's a, has beautiful waters and wonderful people, but several of the inns right along the river have been abandoned. And these are looming structures of, you know, multiple stories high. And the ways that, you know, moss and other things grow up around the the base of them and trees grow out of the roofs it it gives it a kind of ghost town feeling and it's not that um appealing to most tourists they want to see a picture perfect uh furusato style location like they see in kurokawa yeah and then unfortunately that uh particular image is increasingly evident throughout rural parts of japan the the, the japan people see 
in you know their images of Tokyo from the Olympics, for example, that's not what a lot of Japan looks like right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's. Uh, I think when people do go out of the countryside, they're sort of surprised because they're just you know it, there aren't enough people to take care of the buildings. That's basically a big part of what's happened. Or take care of the forests, or take care of the fields, or yeah, it's it's a it's a ongoing problem. So there's a really interesting passage about halfway through the book when you describe an incident in which you were folding towels and one of your coworkers laughed and exclaimed that you would make a good wife. Um, and you, you, you noted that it was meant as a compliment, but also that it was a sort of subtle demarcation of boundaries of work related to what's appropriate for men and women. And I was actually struck by this because I've had this happen, something similar several times where I've been at some sort of gathering and I go into the kitchen and start washing dishes and I just get absolutely pushed out of the way. Um, and I have clearly stepped over a boundary um, where I shouldn't be doing that. And so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, these boundaries and, and why you think she was making that point about them. Well, I, I mean, I, I was always interested in those boundaries and I was pre- pushing them from day one because instead of just wanting to scrub baths and drive guests around and sweep the paths of the inn, I wanted to also do some of the cleaning work. And um, I was never allowed to serve meals, but I was allowed to kind of encounter guests in every other way. And then there was this this real question of cleaning and doing laundry and, and these other things that... For the generation of women that I was working with, and I think the space of the yeah, that's a it, it's funny you mentioned that moment um, where my colleague uh, talks about me being a good wife. Um, I, I, I you know there's a lot going on there, and I try to get into this in the book. Uh, the challenge is uh, from the start, I was a man uh, doing or, or invading f- f- women's space, right? I was never allowed to, to carry food or deliver, uh, sorry, to serve food to guests, but I was allowed to do all of the other behind the scenes work that women do, including all of the cleaning. And uh, from the start, that was very unusual for my coworkers who came from a certain generation. As I said, most of my coworkers were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think they were raised in a certain generation feeling that there were certain kinds of work for men and certain kinds of work for women. And I think the space of the ryokan, since it doubles as a home, a family home, and since it, it has all of those spaces that are related to a, a domestic space, I, I think that compounds this idea that there are certain labor done by women, certain labor done by men, and they, they, I mean, no one should be crossing those boundaries, basically. Um, And so um, I think that my colleague was, I think for forever, it was always um, unusual to her. And she just couldn't help but react and and remark on how unusual that was to see a man doing these uh, women's jobs. Uh, It was all part of, um, in some cases, a kind of fun background. uh, When when we weren't in front of guests, there was was a lot of joking. Uh, In some cases, sexual humor. In other cases, um, uh, yeah, humor related to being Japanese or not being Japanese in my case. but I think for her, uh, this I don't, you know, I wouldn't uh, 
suggest that I could read the mind of my coworker, but she was reacting in a certain way that I understood. Uh, but it did seem to police those boundaries between men's work and women's work um, in 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 humorous ways. Hmm. Yeah, that's been my experience when this sort of thing happens too. That there's a lot of humor. But the humor is also pointing out that we've we've traversed the boundary here, and it's sort of funny that we've traversed it, but it's also it was traversed. And I, I think the other thing that's interesting is that being a foreigner has an effect on that. I'm, I was I've always been convinced that it's sort of, in some ways, maybe a little more tolerated than it might be otherwise. I and agree completely. Also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I think recognition that you're doing research, they're like, they, people understand, okay, you're trying to learn about this. I get that, but it's still a little uncomfortable that you're here doing this, you know? Um, yeah. And, and they're con- continually reminding me of that. Um, and yet tolerating me because, uh, well, I, I mentioned this in, in the book multiple times, but I feel like um, I arrived at the right time at this particular inn where it was getting busy. It was just before Obon season and uh, the the inn was shorthanded. And so whatever I wanted to do and wherever I wanted to be and whatever labor I was willing to provide was welcomed with open arms by my staff and my, uh, my boss because quite literally they needed that extra set of hands. I mean, literal set of hands, especially to wash dishes for hours and hours and hours every day. Um, and without me, they could have done it, but it would have been more difficult. So uh, whether or not I was, you know, uh, uh, disturbing any boundaries uh, at, uh, at some point didn't matter because I was helping um, helping people get home at a reasonable time uh, each evening. Then... You know, there's a huge amount to talk about in this book, um, and I'm going to prod you to do something that that I've always I've always appreciated. That anthropologist Bill Kelly at Yale says that he he doesn't like to try to forecast the future because humans are just too complicated. But um, but I'm going to ask you, you know, what do you think the future is related to Ryokan in Japan and, and to this industry? I mean, you know, when you, when you think about it, particularly in relation to the issue of depopulation, but just all sorts of changes that are happening in Japanese society. Where, where do you think it's going? Well, this is um, again and again, the most common question asked uh, when I give talk about this, because uh, everyone does want to be a prog- prognosticator. Everyone wants to try to predict the future. And uh, people do that when it comes to rural depopulation issues, as I'm sure you're asked all the time. You know, what does the future hold for, for rural Japan? Um, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, my most common response is that I feel like the ryokan industry itself is going nowhere. It's fine. It is such a unique feature of the accommodations and tourism landscape in Japan that it's not going anywhere. But that ignores um, some of the complexity within the industry. And it also ignores the fact that um, on the micro scale, there will certainly be some inns who are located in unattractive areas or whose, whose owners cannot afford to refinance and rebuild or improve the facilities in any way, or 
and or a combination, uh, it could be that they also don't have um, a next generation heir to take over, uh, either because they didn't have children or because they don't have any child who's willing to take over a failing business. And that will be the end of those particular ryokan. Um, there will also be other places that continue to be popular. There will be Byokan still located in, in very popular tourist areas like Kyoto, but also large hot springs villages like Atani and um, Arima and um, Dogo, Onsen, Beppu, and Kurokawa, Kusatsu. All of these places will be fine. Um, they will easily find, even if families don't find family-based heirs to take over, they will be able to sell the business to someone. It will be a successful business to take over and run into the future. There will also be, um, I think, a kind of continued diversification of the Ryokan experience. There'll be some places that are traditional and continue to be run in a very, um, uh, I would say, simple, traditional way. And there will be some places that completely renovate and redesign and um, turn into kind of a, a very wealthy kind of resort style, uh, which has cutting edge design by some of the top names or has incredible food experiences that are levels above what are currently enjoyed in the, the kaiseki meals of a typical ryokan. So I think there'll be a kind of diversification within the ryokan industry, a hyper-diversification within it, uh, places where people will be willing to spend $1,000 or more a night per person. Um, those kinds of places will continue to do well, and they will be out there at the same time that there will still be more traditional-run places, like the ones I talk about in, in uh, my book. So that's where I think the future is going. Uh, although, like I said, I think it's difficult to predict the future. And I would agree with uh, Bill Kelly that it's not a very productive thing to do. Because as, as someone who studies people, I can only kind of report back what I see. <laughs> and I'm not predicting their actions. I'm just trying to, in the most colorful and uh, evocative po way possible, relate what I see and the relationships I, I witness. So, Chris, what's up next? Could you talk a little bit about your current research and what your plans are for future writing? Um, I'm currently just finishing a sabbatical in which I was talking about this book to audiences around the world. And I'm really happy that I got so many um, great questions and great feedback. And it makes me want to write a second book about Ryokan. I mean, I would love to go back and, and do some, some follow-up uh, longer-term research I don't know when I could do that. So I, I might uh, write uh, an article or two about what's kind of currently happening in Ryokan, um, uh, especially in the wave of COVID. Um, however, I've been kind of distracted in a, in a larger way over the last few years on a, a project, a podcast related to the idea of home in Singapore. So it's it's a ha it, it's partly a writing project because I write the scripts with students uh, and we explore through student experiences and through their student lives um, what home means in that tiny uh, interesting country called Singapore. 
so I, you know, I explored those geographies of home um, through through student uh, work. Uh, it starts with student homework, and then we end up uh, building upon some of their homework ideas and going out into the field and recording um, the spaces and and people and, and and places of their lives, and then we put that online, and it's a a wonderful project that's uh, really given me incredible insight into student lives in a way that just writing doesn't because we also get to get the audio of those, like I say, those spaces and those people and those objects that signify home for my students. So the podcast is called uh, Home on the Dot. It refers to the little red dot of Singapore, Home on the Dot. And it's available on any pod, major podcast um, server. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I hope that your university recognizes it as research. Um, I have found that uh, my department, at least, uh, when I do things that are a little bit different like that, thanks me for doing out- outreach. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's probably like uh, I make the university look good, but whether it helps for promotion and things like that, probably not so much. But that really doesn't matter because that's been really the most rewarding thing I've done in my in my career is um, is really taking the time to listen to my students and to work with them as writers and as uh, I guess we would say content producers. But it's it's more than just content. Uh, These are deeply emotional um, reflections on the complexity of home. And the, like I say, the spaces, places, objects, people that, that, that build these, build this sense of home for students. I've learned Mm. so much from them. Yeah. Students have a way of being wonderful teachers. (laughs) But, well, Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the New Books Network. Um, I, anybody who's interested in Japan or work or the hospitality industry, I think will find this a very interesting and important read. Uh, It's been a true pleasure talking with you about this fascinating book. Well, thanks for taking the time to do so. 